This is the American Psychological Association's Division 15 podcast series on emerging research in educational psychology. My name is Jeff Green. Thanks for joining us. So there's this saying that is a bit of a joke, but also kind of true. Research is me-search. It means that often people study things that are particularly relevant or important to them. In my case, I study self-regulation because often I've struggled with self-regulation. And I particularly struggled with self-regulation during the global pandemic, when most, if not all, of my work interactions were moved to video conferencing. I really struggled to self-regulate my engagement. You know, in the past and in face-to-face meetings, I might check my email once or at most twice an hour. But when video conferencing, I found myself checking my email a lot, making it hard for me to stay engaged in the meeting. For a while, I blamed myself and my self-regulation skills, and certainly I had work to do there. But the online context itself also played a role in how I could and should engage. Doctors Florence Martin and Jared Borup have written a wonderful article about how online engagement is a dynamic interaction of personal and contextual factors. And it has really helped me rethink why I struggle to be positively engaged online and what I can do about it. So I'm thrilled to be talking to them about their article today. Dr. Florence Martin is a professor in learning, design, and technology at North Carolina State University. She engages in research to create transformative learning experiences through effective design and integration of digital teaching and learning innovations. In recent years, she has researched the design of online learning environments, cybersecurity, and computer science education. She is currently serving as the American Educational Research Association's Division C Section Chair for Engineering and Computer Science and serves on the Advisory Council for the North Carolina Virtual Public Schools. Dr. Jared Borup is an Associate Professor in the Division of Learning Technologies at George Mason University and a coordinator for the Learning Technology in Schools Master's Program that is devoted to improving teacher practices in online and blended learning environments. Jared taught history at a junior high school for six years and has taught online and blended courses since 2008. He currently researches student support systems in online and blended environments. Today, we're talking about Drs. Martin and Borup's 2022 article in Educational Psychologist entitled Online Learner Engagement, Conceptual Definitions, Research Themes, and Supportive Practices, which is part of a special issue of Educational Psychologist entitled Diverse Lenses on Improving Online Learning Theory, Research, and Practice. So Florence and Jared, thanks so much for joining me today. Happy to be here. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I think it's pretty obvious that learner engagement is important, both in face-to-face and online contexts. But can you talk to us about how engagement is uniquely important in online contexts? You know, like what is it about online contexts that make learner engagement especially or differently important? So when you teach face-to-face, the instructor and the student are in the same room. And you're able to see how engaged the student is in the learning process. You're able to see the student's reactions right away. Whereas in an online setting, and if we talk about asynchronous online settings specifically, you are separated not only in distance, but also in time. So you definitely cannot see the student in action live as you can see in an in-person setting. So uh, because of which it is even more important to build in a number of strategies through which the learner can be engaged. So that's an asynchronous. And um, even in the synchronous setting, you might be separated by distance, but then, you know, logged in at the same time. And there is still challenges. As you mentioned early, Jeff, the student can be distracted 
mm-hmm. because you know of that distance and they could be a lot of times they could be multitasking working on something else when there is a live class going on mm-hmm. so because of this separation i think engagement is even more important and designers and instructors have to do all that they can to build in more strategies mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I taught ninth grade social studies in person. And, you know, as an in-person instructor, you just automatically know if students are engaged. And that's a term we kind of throw out all the time. And we use it to evaluate our instruction. You know, you go down to the faculty room, it's like, oh, man, those kids, they just weren't engaged. Or, wow, they were really engaged in that lesson. It went so well. Mm -hmm. So as an in-person instructor, you're constantly kind of getting this input from students and and figuring out how they're feeling about things and and what they're doing and if they're getting it if they're if they're understanding things. So I wouldn't say that it's more important in mm-hmm. an online environment. I think that engagement is important regardless of the context. Mm-hmm. But in an online environment there are other obstacles to engagement that you have to overcome. And as an instructor, it's harder to recognize engagement in an online environment. So some of the obstacles, Jeff, you mentioned it in your introduction. I I love that. I think we can all relate to checking emails during meetings or turning off your camera and making a sandwich or things like that. (laughs) And so in in synchronous online learning, it's hard to really get students to connect emotionally with what you're doing or to focus and and to do what they need to be doing when, when you ask them to do it so that they can actually learn. And then in asynchronous courses where you have even more flexibility beyond just flexibility in space, you have flexibility in time, it can be really challenging to to make sure that students are engaging in all the ways that they need to. We hear a lot in the news about quiet quitting. Have you heard of all the news about that? Well, there's quiet quitting in in classes too, where students will just fade away. And as an instructor, it can take some time to recognize that if you're not paying attention to learner engagement. Great. So both of you painted a really nice picture here. So there's engagement from the student perspective. There's engagement in terms of the teacher and what the teacher is doing. And then there's the actual nature of the interaction itself, the context, whether it's synchronous or asynchronous and all these other factors. And so all those pieces seem really important. But as you describe in your article, when you look at the academic literatures, say in educational psychology and then the academic literature in educational technology, they don't always address all those factors, right? So there's kind of different emphases in those literatures, right? That's right. You know, there, there are some great resources on learner engagement. One of, you know, my go-to resource is a handbook of research on student engagement. Mm-hmm. It, it's fantastic. There's 39 chapters in there, all addressing engagement in different ways. There's only one chapter in the whole handbook that even makes meaningful reference to online learning. And so I think that that learner engagement research has a very long history, but it's been slow to kind of recognize and to zero in on what is going on in the online uh, learning environment, which is super important even before the pandemic. I mean, online learning was growing rapidly. And now after remote teaching has kind of subsided a little bit, there's still going to be people that really liked it and they want to stay online. And so we're only going to see online enrollments continue to grow mm-hmm. and and different types of online learning as well. And so we really need more research that zeroes in on not only what is engagement, but how does the learning environment impact how 
students engage either by restricting it or enhancing learner engagement? Mm -hmm. So, you know, given that perspective, I, I think it's, it's important to do what you did in this article, which is give us a definition of online learner engagement that is comprehensive, that covers, you know, multiple dimensions. So can you give us a sense of kind of how you two are defining online learner engagement and how that relates to these literatures so that we can begin kind of unpacking it as you do in your article? Yeah. So... As, as I mentioned before, we use the term engagement all the time as, as instructors. We're constantly saying, you know, we need students to be engaged or we want our learners to be engaged. That, that's our goal. But when you come down to it, it's a really complicated construct that people don't agree on. Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. lots of research on, on learner engagement, but when it comes to a universal definition, it's really been elusive to find it. One researcher called it the holy grail of learning, which I love <laughs> because it's, yeah. it's highly sought after, but it's really difficult to get, you know, um, mm -hmm. and it's been even harder to define. So yeah. different fields approaches this in, in different ways. And so in, in the article, we, we make a note that educational psychologists in that field they really focus on the dimensions of engagement and then they, they work to define that. So while there's some disagreement, for the most part, what we found is that people have been identifying three dimensions of engagement. And the first is affective mm -hmm. engagement, which is, you know, the emotional energy, the emotional response to, to learning, behavioral engagement, the physical energy that, that you exert in learning activities and cognitive engagement, the mental energy that you use to kind of understand concepts. Mm -hmm. And then in the field of educational technology, they, they tend to, you know, in, in, our, in our field where Florence and I are coming from, we focus a, a lot on interactions and the environment. And so oftentimes we'll see people say or define engagement by like multimodal engagement or, or instructor engagement or, or what the student is interacting with, which is really important. But the argument we make in the article is that we should probably focus on the dimensions of engagement and then also bring in the environment by saying with peers or with technology or through presence or through communication. So then that way we, we're acknowledging both the dimensions of engagement and the environment. Mm. But specifically how we're defining it to kind of honor both the dimensions and the environment, our definition is online learner engagement is a productive, cognitive, affective, and behavioral energy that a learner exerts interacting with others and learning materials and or through learning activities and experiences in online learning environments. So that, I think that's a, a fantastic definition because it really does illustrate this kind of interaction, the synthesis of these different perspectives and gives us a more holistic view on what online learner engagement is and kind of how it's afforded, et cetera. And, you know, I, I don't want to spend too much time on any one piece because, you know, your article has so much depth and there's, we could talk all day about it. But I, I am kind of curious whether either of you have a sense of for the affective and the behavioral and the cognitive engagement, I mean, are there are there good tools or are there ways of kind of sensing that in different kinds of online learner environments? I mean, I know that synchronous and asynchronous and hybrid contexts are all really different, but is there something about the online context that might help us assess those things differently than we might as, say, a teacher in front of students in an actual classroom? 
Broadly speaking, this was, you know, something we identified even in our recommendation um, at mm-hmm. the end of the article. Mm-hmm. There is a lack of measures specifically, you know, to study engagement in the online context. Mm-hmm. So the short answer would be definitely there is a need for more work. Mm-hmm. You know, the tests are usually modified or adapted, right, to study cognitive engagement, whether there's learning happening, how, how engaged the students are with the content, you, you might see that. But mm-hmm. on the other aspects, effective and behavioral, we definitely need more measures. Mm-hmm. For behavioral, researchers are beginning to use analytics data a lot. Mm-hmm more these mm-hmm. days there's an entire field right examining mm-hmm. how data can be extracted from the learning management system and other systems that are being used to see whether we can identify how engaged the learners are again there are also challenges that come with it too i don't know how accurate you know the data is for example mm-hmm. if a student logs in into a course and then disappears for eight hours and then comes back again does that mean the student has been in engaged with the content for eight hours. You know, challenges like that uh, still exist. Uh, So different types of data are being collected to measure engagement in the online context. But I think we still need more measures. Yeah, and as as a as a researcher, those measures are fantastic. And And as a instructor, I really wish learning management systems did a better job of providing you some indication of even behavioral engagement. I know Mm -hmm. that I use one very popular learning management system at our university, and the only easily accessible piece of data that I can find is their last login, which is Mm -hmm. not very great. It's helpful, but, but I think that learning management systems could do a much better job of presenting the behavioral data in a way that teachers can actually act on it, instructors can act on it. Mm-hmm. I think the hardest one to kind of recognize for researchers and for instructors is affective engagement sure. because it's not easily observable. You kind of have to ask students mm-hmm. how they're feeling or ask them questions about their affective engagement. So there are some measures that are, are helpful with that. But I also feel like if you're only hearing what your students have to say via text, that's a challenge too. So, I mean, the the rise of synchronous online learning has been great because you can get a better sense of how students are feeling if they're participating and they have their webcam on and things like that. Uh, but mm-hmm. also there's asynchronous video that instructors can use discussion platforms like Padlet and Flipgrid and mm-hmm. some LMS where they can actually record a message. And I found that as an instructor, I can get a better sense of students' affective engagement based on what they're Uh, how they're saying things, not necessarily what they're saying. And so as instructors, there are some workarounds to kind of get a sense for affective engagement and and behavioral and cognitive engagement. But in general, we need better measures, both for researchers and for practitioners. And I have one additional measure that I saw. Mm -hmm. And this was not a traditional LMS. Um, It was an adaptive learning system. It was very interesting. So the completion of every module, the student had an option to, like, you know, interact with an emoticon. 
No. So the student could choose like a smiley face or a sad mm-hmm. face or, you know, a stressed face. So mm-hmm. to communicate their feeling at the end of that particular module. So mm-hmm. I thought that was neat. You know, we don't see that in the typical LMSs. So mm-hmm. I thought that was a nice way to collect some effective feedback. Otherwise, yeah, Jared, Jared is right. You know, the instructor has to be very intentional in asking about the student feeling. And we don't know if you know the students are willing to share and express with us you know the challenge if they have challenges are they willing to share with us at that point when they are separated by distance mm-hmm. so effective measures are definitely harder and also uh, with video i think in, in synchronous it's great you can see the student but then you know there's also research on are we able to expect the student to be on a video all the time Right. Right. So we want to also give the students the choice, depending on what else is going on in their life, whether they are sharing their space with other siblings or uh, others in their family. Mm -hmm. And are we able to see them live when a synchronous class is going on? And Florence, that's such an important point. Right. So, you know, we would love to be able to see students and engage with them synchronously or have them record video, et cetera. But sometimes that's an intrusion and sometimes students don't want to do that. And we have to have different ways of assessing their engagement and helping to productively foster their engagement. And as you mentioned, you know, like, and Jared, you said this too, like you have a, a login, you know, so you know that a student logged in uh, at some point and then Florence, I think you gave the example, like eight hours later, they log back in. Well, what, what happened in those eight hours, you know, where they... Did they download everything in the LMS and they were just studiously reading it? Or did they go off and get coffee with friends and then come back later? You don't know. And so it does feel like a big piece of online learner engagement is trying to assess their cognition and their affective engagement and their behavioral engagement. And there are some affordances to an online environment, but there's also some real challenges to inference. And we shouldn't assume that they are direct or easily interpreted measures of those things. And, and your article does a great job of, of walking through those pieces. The, the second piece that I thought was equally as important are these more kind of um, contextual aspects, these affordances and constraints of these contexts. And first, you talked about them in terms of with affordances and through affordances. Can you help us understand what the difference would be or why it's important to think about engagement with affordances and engagement through affordances? So the five themes that we came up with focuses on communication, interaction, presence, collaboration, and community. And some focus on with, you know, there is they are engaging with others. And some are through, like, for example, there's a communication channel involved. So through a particular platform that they are engaging with. So aligned with the definition that we shared earlier, so engagement is happening both with and through. Mm-hmm. So that's why we mapped it back to the definition. Mm-hmm. And I can explain a little bit more. I'll give you an example. For example, right. you know, for communication, we talked about three different types of communication methods. So in asynchronous communication method, you know, there's particular strategies that can be used. You could do asynchronous discussions, which is an excellent way to keep students engaged. And you can also see whether they are engaged. 
right? You require them to usually make a main post and then have them respond to a couple of their peers. And so there's this conversation going and there's a lot of learning happening there. And then sometimes you can even have a student be a peer moderator in there and the peer moderator can give feedback or you as an instructor can go in and provide feedback. So this particular example, you know, there is engagement uh, happening through this particular discussion for a medium, but then it's also happening with the others in the classroom. So similarly, just like the asynchronous environment, you know, in synchronous too, that can happen right? Mm -hmm. uh, all of you are logged in in a particular synchronous tool and they could be in a breakout session having a conversation with the facilitator and engagement is happening and then you can bring them back into the main room, have them summarize or present a key aspect of the discussion. So again, that's another communication medium where engagement can be happening. And finally, the bikeriness, uh, which is a new term, which denotes the blending of both the synchronous and asynchronous where mm -hmm. now some students might like the flexibility in the learning process you know the time delay for them mm -hmm. to really think through and engage but then some students might like the immediacy right just the immediate feedback and interaction and mm -hmm. so bikeriness brings both platforms together and I've seen researchers call this as a happy medium mm -hmm. so students get both aspects where they can interact and engage with others. That's such a, a helpful elucidation of the factors involved, right? So we've talked about earlier how engagement, I mean, it's one of those things where you often know it when you see it or you feel it, but you, it's hard to define. And it's easy to define it just in terms of cognition and affective engagement, behavioral engagement. But what you've illustrated so well here in our podcast and in your paper is that the nature of those dimensions of engagement and how they manifest and if they manifest and how they relate to learning really can vary depending upon who you're with, who you're engaging with in an online context, and also the mediums and tools and other things that you're engaging through. And, th and those are ideas that I think are critical to integrate into the engagement literature. So I'm so pleased that you're doing that. And Florence, your example of kind of differences across synchronous and asynchronous and bichronous is a great way to illustrate how important it is to nuance our understanding of engagement and cognitive effective and behavioral engagement. So, so thank you for that. I do, you know, again, there's tons in your article and we could talk about it all day. So we can't go over through everything, but I thought there were a couple themes that were just super interesting. Certainly, you know, the communication theme was, was really interesting. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about engagement through presence. What is that? And how should we be thinking about engagement through presence when we're thinking about online learning contexts? I can definitely elaborate on that. I know there was an entire article on COI in the special issue, if you want a lot more detail. In this article, you know, we briefly touch on it. So presence is the manifestation of oneself right, of being present through the interactive participation in uh, designing, teaching, and learning. So there are three types of presence based on the community of inquiry framework. So mm -hmm. it's the mm -hmm. cognitive presence, the teaching presence, and the social presence. So cognitive presence is the learner's ability to construct and affirm meaning and how engaged the students are in critical reflection and discourse. Whereas teaching presence, not teacher presence, teaching presence, 
reasons, is defined as the design and facilitation of cognitive and social processes for learning. Again, this focuses on the instructor interactions with students and course content. And then finally, the social presence is how they perceive others in an online environment and focuses on the human experience of developing interpersonal relationship. Mm -hmm. So I just, you know, went back to the definitions to explain those three presences. Mm -hmm. And presence has been studied, examined quite a bit in research, and all three presences have been found to be important. A matter of fact, I did a meta-analysis on the CUI presences, and I think the cognitive presence had a larger effect compared to the other presences, but clearly all three presences were important to engage uh, learners. So one thing, you know, we struggled with in this article is even though we have these terms, you know, we have communication, we have interaction, we have presence, we have community, collaboration, and we've looked at it through the lens of engagement, but a lot of researchers don't connect this with engagement. So you would not even see the term engagement appear in any of their articles. So they study these as separate variables, which are very important. But then I think also connecting it to engagement, you know, and how it affects cognitive engagement or behavioral engagement or effective engagement, I think that would have been more valuable. A few researchers have done that, but I think there is a need for more researchers to also look at these research themes through uh, the lens of engagement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know that uh, social presence is, is one area that I've done a lot of research in, and it probably sounds like a pretty low bar, you know, the ability to convey your personality and to let people know that you're a real person. Mm-hmm. For an in-person environment, you'd never think, oh, well, is that person real or not? Like, it's just kind of automatic that you know that they're real mm-hmm. and you know that they have personality. But I cannot tell you how many students I've interviewed where they're like, yeah, this instructor did something and and it made me know that she was real or he was real. Mm-hmm. And there is that mm-hmm. added obstacle in an online environment that you just have to find ways to convey your personality and to help students recognize that you care about them. And you also see them as real people and going through this process of learning through the course together. So it's hard to do that sometimes, especially in an asynchronous environment, online environment, mm-hmm. to kind of build this sense of community and togetherness while you're at a distance. But it seems essential, right? And and what your definition does so well is my sense is that social presence is necessary for students to feel engaged. But the nature of the online context, whether it's synchronous or asynchronous or bichronous, the affordances and constraints of the tools available, whether it's Zoom or a chat or whatever the case may be, all those things probably affect how people can express social presence and how people perceive it. So I think if I'm understanding you correctly, the important point here, one of the many important points here is that we can't just measure student engagement and we can't just make a list of affordances. We've got to think about how those things interact and how they manifest in phenomena like social presence. Because all these things are kind of, from my perspective, dynamically interacting to affect students' experience. I mean, is that feels to me like one of the real novel contributions of your article. Am I semi on track here? Yeah, I think that, you know, in in our article, we try to talk about two fields with educational psychology and educational technology. These, These two fields are talking about engagement, 
but their approaches to studying engagement are very different. Educational mm-hmm. psychologists mm-hmm. have done a fantastic job of identifying the dimensions, of defining them and exploring those. And in educational technology, we have not done a very good job of that. But one thing that we kind of add to the conversation is that we are pretty good at knowing, well, what are the the limitations of the environment? What are the affordances of the environment? And then how do we change that environment? How do we design that environment to enhance mm-hmm. learner engagement? And so I think one thing that we're really trying to do in this article is get these two communities to talk more together. Because if they right. do, if we do then we can really have greater impact on students and their engagement. Great. And also to add, you know, among these research teams, these are not standalone teams. They all kind of overlap as well. So, for example, you know, looking at interaction, this learner, 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 instructor, learner content interaction, right? So the way the learner and instructor interacts does affect teaching presence does affect social presence. So there is an overlap in how, you know, the learners engage based on these research themes. Or for example, collaboration, right? If you do Mm -hmm. collaborate to work, even though it's challenging, we all know that that helps build a community of learners together. And then there's also like social presence established there. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of overlaps across these themes. Yeah, and that, and that is so helpful to kind of enunciate all those themes and then show how they interact and then show how they interact with the affordances and constraints and the psychological phenomena that are happening. Really, really helpful. And then, you know, later in the article, you bring forth the academic communities of engagement framework as an exemplar, as, as a way to think about all these things together. So can you talk to us just a little bit about that framework and how it illustrates the ideas that you're communicating in your article? Yeah, so the... Academic Communities of Engagement Framework is a framework that we published in 2020. Charles Graham, who edited the special issue, was also an author on the framework. And really, as a framework, we we see engagement as an ability. So mm-hmm. students' ability to engage cognitively, affectively, and behaviorally will vary based on learner characteristics, learner background, their previous experiences. Mm-hmm. And so each student is coming to the course with different levels of ability to engage. Whether or not they maximize their ability is another thing, but building on very familiar concepts from Vygotsky and the zone of proximal development and and others, we make the argument in the framework that students' ability to engage will increase as they receive support. Mm -hmm. And so in the framework, we've kind of grouped support actors into two communities. There's a course community, and that's anybody affiliated with the course. So that would be the instructor. That could be a a teacher's assistant or an aide. That could be a learner's peers. Mm -hmm. But they basically have a relationship with the learner because of their enrollment in the course. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's certain things that, for instance, an instructor can do that other actors can't do, or that a peer can do that other actors can't do in in that environment. And a lot of the research, especially in higher education, has focused on the course community and the support that the course community can provide to increase engagement. But if you're only looking at the course community, that's, that's a very narrow, limited view, because we also know that the learners have other communities that they're a part of. And, and we've kind of grouped 
them into what we call the personal community of support. Mm -hmm. And so there's certain types of support that others that have a relationship with the learner, not based on their enrollment in the course, but because of who the learner is, they can provide different types of support that the course community simply cannot provide, or they understand Mm -hmm. the learner in different ways. And so they they can better respond, uh, recognize and respond to certain needs. And so if we can look at learner engagement as an ability, recognizing that it's going to be different across learners, and then also look at how does the course community support behavioral, cognitive, affective engagement, and how does the the personal community support that? And and I feel like during the pandemic, we really recognize this where... Mm -hmm especially at the K-12 level, the personal community support was critical. And a lot of learners, if they didn't have that support at home, the course community needed to respond and provide additional support in order to make sure that that learner was going to be successful. And so there's certainly a dynamic there between the the support received by the course community and the support received by the personal community. And if you can understand that, then you can better design, you can better work with students to ensure that they're successful. And I love how you're, you're bringing it back to design. And when you're thinking about designing an online experience to facilitate learner engagement and performance and achievement, all those things, you two have really illustrated how you've got to think about not just the person's own engagement, but also in their ability to engage, but also these affordances and constraints of the tools. But then also through the ACE uh, framework, you know, they're both course and personal support systems. And that personal support system, as you said, Jared, is so important and it can be vital to success you know, as you illustrated, during the pandemic, we know that was one of the key predictors of student success. And you, you've just shined a light um, into this, what I'm, I'm picturing like this dark room, you know, and we could see one corner that was just like psychological engagement. And you've, you know, maybe in another corner, we can kind of see, okay, affordances and constraints of context. And you've just shown this light that has illustrated these things connect and there's more to it and they all interact. And I'm, I'm just really pleased at how well your article brings these things together. It's almost like a bioecological perspective on learner engagement in online context. The article brings those things together and then illustrates all these cool directions for future research. I think Florence, you mentioned earlier, there's a need for better measures and better definitions and all those kinds of things. And another part that I really liked about your paper was you talked about how once we take this perspective, how we should think about helping educators. So can you talk to us a little bit about what you think we can do to help educators who are beginning to do online instruction, how to help them design effectively? Yeah, I think that is very, very critical, right? Anytime we do research, we want to be able to support practitioners who do this on a regular basis, especially those who are new. A lot of them were new during the pandemic, and uh, maybe some of them went back to their old uh, traditional methods of teaching. But some instructors might have seen uh, the value and the affordances of the online environment and might be continuing on. I think the online environment has a lot to offer, especially especially for those learners who need it, you know, at all ages. Mm -hmm. There are learners who can benefit from this environment. And 
Online teaching, you know, just doesn't stop with design. An instructor has mm-hmm. to be entirely involved in the facilitation process so that the learners can be engaged. That's another way to enhance engagement. But also in the design process, right? Put in all these strategies and opportunities in place, how they can really get the students to interact interact with the content, interact with each other, interact with the instructor. So building in all these opportunities, both in the design stage and also in the facilitation stage is very, very important. And I think that enhances engagement. And then also, you know, thinking through all the other uh, themes we talked about, using different methods. You know, I'm a supporter of Bikerness online learning because it gives the student the flexibility, but at the same time gives them that immediacy and there are some learners who need that whereas there are some learners who do online learning mainly for the flexibility that it offers maybe because they work full-time and they just don't have the time to uh, a lot of time to join in a class so thinking through you know some of these themes that we discussed in the paper and like presence also is very, very important. How do you establish that to engage the learner and then collaboration building and collaborative opportunity? And we all know as instructors how hard that is, right? Collaboration is hard even in a face-to-face or in-person class. So when you have to do it online, it's extra hard. So a lot of thinking has to put in on how you design those collaborative opportunities. But it is meaningful because then it brings the learners together and helps them stay engaged and Finally, uh, community is very important. And for them, you know, having a group of people to go through this course with, I think that's very, very important for them. Otherwise, they could easily feel isolated and, you know, lose interest in the course very soon. So uh, I think all the strategies that we discussed, I think instructors could use that in the design and facilitation of online learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one thing we need to consider is, are we asking online instructors to do too much, right? Can, can we really expect an online instructor to recognize cognitive behavioral affective engagement and then respond to all those things? I think we can if there's manageable student loads. But some, some of the most interesting work that's been happening is that oftentimes, especially at the K-12 level, you'll have a learner that is taking an online course And you have the instructor that focuses on helping that learner with cognitive engagement and maybe behavioral engagement, but that learner is also given a mentor or a facilitator that isn't the instructor of the course, but that individual focuses on how how can I recognize affective engagement and behavioral engagement and then respond quickly to that learner. Mm. And sometimes that mentor or that coach is online. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're actually in person. So a lot of these air quotes online course are actually blended where you have these uh, high school students actually going into a classroom with other people taking online courses with a facilitator there that meets with them regularly, make sure they're doing okay, they're feeling okay, they're learning how to learn online. Although they're they're not answering Mm -hmm. any of the content related questions or they can't really support the cognitive engagement, they can certainly connect with the student and build relationships. And another thing that we're seeing in our research is, is we recently had a 
MOOC or a massive open online course. And so these, mm-hmm. these courses, they don't have enrollment limitations. So you have tens of thousands of students. And so you can imagine the completion rates are kind of low. And so we, we had this MOOC and our completion rate was way higher than we thought. And so <laughs> while we were patting ourselves on the back, we got an email from somebody that basically said, oh, hey, we're, we're doing these MOOC camps. It was like MOOC camps. I don't know what that is. And it turns out that these online learners are actually getting together in these MOOC camps. And sometimes they're facilitated by the local embassy or something. And mm. uh, they're, they're getting together with a facilitator to kind of make sure that they're connecting with the material, that they're, they're on track. And they're also bringing these learners together so that they can discuss and build their cognitive engagement as well. So, so there's really interesting models that are springing up that are focused on learner engagement. And I think one takeaway that we're seeing from these models is the online instructor doesn't have to do it all. Mm-hmm. And that we can actually bring in a, a larger team to have this wraparound support around the learner so that we can better recognize engagement and support it. Well, that, that's fascinating. And that, that's certainly a different direction than I've, I've heard of before. So that's going to be exciting to see what the potential is there and, and where we can go with it. So again, I mean, your article has just a ton of good information. I really encourage everyone to go check it out. You know, we can't <laughs> talk about everything here today. You know, one thing I like to ask authors that are on this podcast that have been published in Educational Psychologists is if they have any advice for people who are wanting to write manuscripts that they hope will be accepted by the journal. Any tips or tricks? Uh, it was not an easy process, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> mainly because, you know, we're trying to write a conceptual piece here. And I know educational psychologist also publishes, like with empirical data, right? Meta-analysis, yeah. Sometimes I feel we, it would have been easier for us to do a meta-analysis or a systematic review. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Writing conceptual piece is not easy, but I think the collaboration that Jared and I had was great. We've never worked before together, but... We ended up really complementing each other and brought our strengths in. And I think that really helped. The other thing uh, challenging, both of us were educational technologists, right? Mm-hmm. So, and we are writing for predominantly ed psych audience. So I think that is where, again, we were challenged a little bit. Maybe it would have been helpful if we had an ed psych person also on the team. So we had to just, stretch ourselves and mm-hmm. you know look through what, what has been written about uh, these topics in the psych literature so for those who are you know thinking of uh, writing to educational psychologists so I, I, my recommendation would be definitely have a good team of collaborators and if you're not from ed psych maybe getting some support from you know uh, ed psych experts and writing conceptual pieces in itself is just not easy overall sure. so that takes extra effort uh, yep. than writing empirical pieces, even if it's secondary research. (laughs) I can't even imagine a time, Florence, when we didn't collaborate and write together. (laughs) This has been such a bonding experience, you know, working on this article. It's been really fun. And I I would just say, you know, find great collaborators, right? And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, what's interesting is Florence and I were, while we're in the same field, we're coming at it from different perspectives as well. Mm -hmm. And so that was, that was really valuable, I felt. And uh, the other bit of advice I would give is just ground it in theory. It's yeah. the only way that you're going to make a meaningful contribution in, in any journal. Mm-hmm. But, but I think especially for this journal, it needs to be uh, grounded in theory. 
That's great. Thank you. Really, really good advice. I appreciate that. So this seems like a great place to, to wrap it up for now. So I encourage all of our listeners to check out Lawrence and Jared's 2022 article in Educational Psychologist. Again, it's titled Online Learner Engagement, Conceptual Definitions, Research Themes, and Supportive Practices. It's in a great special issue on online learning theory, research, and practice. Again, so thanks so much, Jared and Florence, for talking to me today about your article. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.